Welcome to Ed's Edge, the podcast to help you live the life you've always wanted. I want to give you an edge, a financial edge. I'm Ed Meek. I'm a financial advisor with a passion to help you retire early, save more, and live better. It's often the little things, small behaviors, that can change our lives. That's the power of a financial edge. Low, low, low. All right, I'm not a car salesman, but things are really low right now. Interest rates are the lowest they've ever been. It is crazy. And there's reasons for that that we're going to get into with James in a little bit. But we all know the money that sits in the bank, in your savings account, in your money market accounts, virtually is paying nothing. There's really nowhere to go. And in fact, if people even want to get a CD rate right now, you have to go out really far and you still get nothing. Um, it, it, it is kind of crazy. But compared to where the industry was, backing all the way up to the 80s, interest rates were crazy high and they pretty much come straight down. I want to bring in James here today. Uh, talk about what's the reason, James, that this is happening right now. Yeah, thanks, Ed, and good to be with you. So uh, when we talked about interest rates, obviously that's that's a big topic this year. I think it's important to reflect back on uh, why interest rates change. So if you if you really dissect it out, way back during the Great Depression, there was a central bank that was created called the Federal Reserve. They we're in charge of interest rates at first. Now, they're in charge of a lot more now, but to, to the topic today, they're in charge of interest rates. And so what they do under certain circumstances is they raise interest rates and they lower interest rates. Why is that? So the Fed, when times are tough and they want people to start spending some money, frankly, they will lower interest rates. They will tell the general public, borrowing is cheap, go do it. And when things are in a much better condition, they will raise interest rates because they want to make sure that people don't overextend themselves. So people always ask, you know, why don't we just keep interest rates low the entire time? Well, the problem is uh, there's this thing called inflation. And we all have a general idea of inflation. That's why a dozen eggs cost a lot more today than they did 50 years ago. If we kept interest rates low for a long, long period of time, we would have some pretty high inflation. We don't like that. That's not good for the economy. But in the short term right now, the Fed just said, let's keep interest rates really low. And so what we want to do today is talk through, let's let's take advantage of that while we can. Yeah, definitely. As, as I've said in the past, you know, the two main building blocks uh, in the investment world that we help people uh, primarily invest in are both stocks and bonds. And one version of a bond are mortgages. That's what we're going to talk about today. So when we talk about mortgages, one of the things that people will often ask me as an advisor is the mortgage on a house. Should I pay off my house or should I just borrow and invest the difference? And there's no right or wrong answer. I tell them the reason there's no right or wrong answer is because it's not just a monetary decision. If it was a monetary decision and interest rates are low, most often you can usually get a better rate of return than what you borrow for uh, on your mortgage. But there's a big psychological advantage of having your house paid off. And that's why I can't give somebody an answer one way or the other. I generally will say, if psychologically this is a really big deal, knowing that your house is paid off and it makes you feel good, then that's a really big deal. Then you, then you should consider paying it off. But if you just look at 
the money that's inside of your house as an investment, like everything else, houses generally don't grow that fast. And when interest rates are really low, generally you can get a higher rate of return. James, when people will ask you that, how will, how will you answer that regarding what can I get on a return from an investment? Yeah, good question. So, you know, depending on your risk and your time frame and all that good stuff that we've always talked about, you know, the average rate of return, we've talked about the stock market's average rate of return, you know, high single digits, low double digits, but there's a lot of volatility there. And so, you know, a more uh, conservative approach while not being entirely conservative, a reasonable estimate six, seven percent, sometimes even a little bit higher than that. And so, you know, interest rates being so low, I don't think many people are are borrowing at six, seven percent, which means the math tells us, hey, it might make sense. But I think you made a good point at. I think at the end of the day, if you're losing sleep at night from borrowing too much, uh, our opinion not worth it. Definitely. Well, uh, you're a good example. Uh, just recently, with these low interest rates, you decided to refinance, correct? I did. Yeah, I, I did about three, four months ago. And uh, the fortunate uh, circumstance from that is we were able to save some money from that cheap debt, right? So we saved roughly $300 a month. And the big decision we had, we decided to make is what are we going to do with that money? Well, some people say, let's have some fun with it. I am not opposed to having fun with extra money, um, but we have some some future goals for ourselves, for our family. And so one of them being my my son, Theodore. I went to college myself. I had a lot of student debt myself. That resonates with me. I want to make sure that my son does not have what I have. And so we took that extra $300 in savings, uh, put it in a 529 plan, get a nice little tax break on that, which is helpful. Uh, but if you do some math, run a little simulation on it, you consistently put that in, which knock on wood, I told myself I am going to do. You're looking at, you know, $150,000, $160,000 with about a 6-7% rate of return over 18 years. So some powerful stuff. Uh, doesn't change your life today. Definitely can change his in the future. Changes your life today, but in a very small way, right? I mean, that extra amount, you know, how much is that going to change your life if you ended up spending it? You know, we we uh, we generally know that it's not gonna it's not gonna affect things a lot, and I think that's really a key. You know, your your story is a great one because uh, a lot of times when people refinance, they save a hundred, two, three hundred dollars a month, and they don't really think about what am I gonna do with it. So that's huge when it comes to planning. You just got to make sure if you come up with a game plan, you do do that. What am I gonna do to save myself money and and do with the difference? Couldn't agree more. And and the man who helped me do that uh, will be talking with us pretty soon. Yeah. So there are many moving parts when it comes to mortgages, both buying a house and refinancing a house. So I wanted to bring in an expert today, the expert that actually helped James refinance. His name's Brian Jean Grego, and he is the president of Aplos Mortgage, and he's been doing this a long time. Ed, when I heard you say low, 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 I thought I was in the wrong studio. I thought I was taping a Bears podcast of how low the feeling was after the Monday night loss. Oh my so thanks gosh. for having me come in. Yeah. Are we the uh, worst 5-2 and two team ever in the history of the NFL? Yes, I think so. I think Matt Nagy's on his way out of town here in another week or two. <laughs> that would be unbelievable. He's, he's, he's out of town that quickly with a, such a winning record. I don't know. They might have to wait until they go bad, but we'll Bring see. Bring Lovey back. Oh, geez. He's not very far away, just down the road in Champaign. So so anyways, Brian, uh, why don't you share with us a little bit about your history in the mortgage industry? And I started back in 1999. I actually was kind of a funny story here. I was trying to buy uh, rental properties with a friend of mine uh, just out of college. Um, and we were 
referred to a mortgage broker in Elgin, and uh, she asked me what your job is. And I'm like, well, I've got a couple jobs lined up with some SkyTel pagers. And she's like, well, you can't get a mortgage without a job. So that, so we instantly hit it off, and I ended up that ended up being my first job um, as a marketing associate at this local mortgage company in 1999. So from there, I uh, moved on and worked at a mortgage broker. Um, and actually, interest rates, I believe back then, it's been so long, were close to like 8%. And I remember walking into my boss's office going, man, are we going to be out of business? Uh, we were selling, you know, like seven and a quarter and rates went up to just like eight, eight and a quarter. And we were all freaked out. Right. What did he say when you said that? Uh, he didn't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> primarily our business was wrapped around refinances instead of purchases. So from that company, we I, I moved on. So I do have a, a, some vast experience in the mortgage business. I've worked at uh, a big bank and then um, a couple other mortgage uh, bankers. And so I've gotten to see over the years what behind the scenes looks like at the different institutions. Fast forward uh, to April of 2019, and I made it official, and I opened up Applos Mortgage which is a small mortgage broker up in the Crystal Lake, Illinois area. Great, great. Well, what I thought we would do today was maybe talk about uh, five key areas when it comes to mortgages. Uh, the first is kind of what's the state of the industry, the mortgage industry right now. Um, credit scores, everybody hears about them, but not everybody really knows exactly uh, everything that it, it entails when it comes to credit scores. The different types of kind of mortgage brokers or lenders or whatever you want to call it. And then the two reasons why people do mortgages. One is to buy a house a first time, and the second one is to refinance a house. So let's dive right in. The state of the mortgage industry, uh, Brian, what would you say based upon no, being in it for now over 20 years, what's the state of it today? Uh, crazy, crazy busy, uh, two words. The mortgage rates are at an all-time low, at least as low as I've seen them in the last 20 plus years. We're in a refinance boom um, with COVID now. That threw kind of a wrench into the restrictions for the underwriters. So a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving targets, uh, chaos. We, we try to control the chaos behind the scenes, but it's a very chaotic environment right now. Everybody's trying to grab the lowest rate possible. It's funny you say the uh, restrictions behind the scenes or just restrictions on mortgages. It's just uh, so different than, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years ago, right? I mean, the, uh, James and I have mentioned, you know, when we talk to people, you know, a, a wonderful, great movie that we think that we have a lot of stories out of is called The Big Short. And The Big Short is a movie that talks about how they shorted mortgages. And the reason was, uh, why, Brian? Do you remember why mortgages uh, were so crazy back then? The, the mortgage business was very unregulated. Uh, we were, you know, for lack of a better explanation, my dog could have filled out a, a loan application and almost gotten in a mortgage approved, got approved for a mortgage. I mean, it was, they were, they had these no income, no asset or, or AKA stated loans where you could actually state your income and it didn't have to be verified at, at or little down, almost 95% down only, which is crazy. And so, Mainly, that's what got this, in my opinion, what got the mortgage business in trouble or the market in trouble was right. the, these lenders, they were, they were basically called subprime lenders, were, where they would portfolio the products on their own. They, would have, they wouldn't sell these to Fannie and Freddie, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the government-sponsored enter, enterprises that the mortgage-backed securities are sold. 
Yeah, so uh, basically, if you, if anybody watched the movie, if you don't, you should watch it. It's actually extremely entertaining. But there's this one part in the movie where down in the Miami area, I think there was this guy who didn't even have a job, and he just filled out the application, and he just made stuff up, and he got a mortgage, and all of a sudden, he had this house, this like really nice house, and he never even had a job. So it was kind of crazy. So it People actually were able to do that. Well, it's different now today, right? Yes, absolutely. Those stated loans are gone, basically. Everything needs to be verified. And the other part of that that I didn't, uh, I'd like you to know is that there was prepayment penalties on those loans. So what was happening is people were getting into these no-income verification loans at interest rates that were adjustable, say it was a two-year adjustable rate, that which means the rate could go up. But if you refinanced within the first three years, you were paying six months of interest penalty to get your loan. So it was awful. I mean, People was didn't know pay, what they were they getting themselves they were into. Yeah, yeah. Very instant gratification. Everybody wants it now. Well, we got to work with uh, where the industry at is now. It's a lot more restricted, but that lends us to the second bullet point, which is uh, credit scores. Uh, People have all heard about credit scores, and we all know that I think we should have high credit scores, but why don't you educate us a little bit on credit scores and how it has to do with mortgages? Yeah, mortgage-related, this is a great topic for to talk about credit when we're talking about mortgages. There's three credit bureaus, I think, as maybe all of you know at home, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. So for the sake of mortgages, we actually we run all three of those, and we actually take your mid-score. That's your use to qualify. I would say right now, um, again, there's going to be some rule of th- generally, I'm going to give some rule of thumbs here. Tier one credit score would be 740 or above. So if your credit score is 740 or above, the lenders look at you as a, we call those Rockefellers at home or back at the office. Okay. That's pretty good. And then uh, you got to make sure you at least have what kind of score just to at least start talking about getting a mortgage. Ideally, we want to see you at 640 or above on your mid-score. Technically, we could go down as low as 500, believe it or not, as an independent mortgage broker. The banks will probably not want to talk to you after they find out your score is under 640. The last thing regarding credit scores, you, you, you've you told me this before, that what happens is people see their score at these institutions or they, they can just pull it up pretty easily. Uh, it's not always completely accurate, correct? That's correct. So there's a lot of credit monitoring services, Credit Karma, CreditWise, Experian has one, Discover has one. What I tell my clients is that those are great resources to use to be able to monitor your credit. And what I mean by that is don't get too caught up in the score because there's about 12 different scoring models. Uh, the The mortgage FICO scoring model is different than those credit monitoring services use. So if somebody tells me they have a 680 on a, on at credit wise, they may, they may have a 640 with, with my mortgage credit score. Mm-hmm. The value to these credit monitoring programs are that it keeps, gives you an idea where your balances are, which I love, like on your yeah. accounts. Yeah, good. So the last thing about credit scores, what makes up a credit score, Brian? Well, there's a lot of factors, but let me just share the two main ones. Number one, it's about 33% of your credit scores made up of your timely payments. And the, the, the credit bureaus look at timely payments uh, ba- mainly the last 12 months. So, and, and they go by 30-day lates, 30-day lates, which means you paid your payment over 30 days late. Okay. A lot of people, just to clarify, a lot of people might make a mortgage payment on the 15th. That does not, t- dr- that does not typically get reported negatively. All right. And the second other big factor in your credit score is what we call your credit utilization rate. And really, uh, simplest terms is your balance to limit ratio on your revolving account. So if you have a credit card, for example, and your limit is $1,000 and you have a balance of $900, that will 
draw down your credit score. The sweet spot we see is that you usually like to keep your balances at 40% or less of what the limit is on the credit cards. All right, good. Well, that brings us to the next area. People can get a mortgage through a variety of different institutions. Are there differences? Or is everybody pretty much the same? Not all lenders are created equal. I was I was wanting to been waiting to say that for a while. But uh, for the sake of today, what I did is, is I broke down lenders to two categories. Number one, we have our traditional banks, our big banks, who like the more vanilla deals, trying to stick with your show's food theme. They just, they're, they're boring. They just want that vanilla ice cream. Okay. So they're looking for pretty much credit scores at 640 or above. And then the second- Is the ne- Neapolitan, is that the second one? Well, Neapolitan with a little rocky road on top of oh, it and wow. just oozing with sauce, chocolate sauce. <laughs> the second the second bucket, if you will, is the independent mortgage companies. So these are also known as non-depository banks, mortgage, bro- mortgage bankers who fund their own loans with their own money or mortgage brokers like my company who go out and get different investors to fund their loans. We actually like vanilla ice cream as well, so we'll take all the easy loans. But we're, we're a little bit more partial to the the, the heavy flavored lo- uh, loans of the low credit scores. So uh, what I mean by that is um, mortgage brokers just have a little more. Typically, they traditionally have more outlets. So, for an example, without going too deep into this, but for self-employed borrowers that don't show a lot of income on paper, there we have access to um, bank statement programs where we can actually take. 24 months of bank statements and create an income on paper. It's all it's all ethical and above board, and um, we can create a, a, an income on that. So, in summary, there's good bank. The big banks do a nice job out there as well. I don't want to badmouth any big banks here, but you do seem what my in my experience over the years, I feel like independent mortgage brokers and mortgage bankers have can handle more all different types of clients. That's that's good to know. Well, let's dive in. There's really two ways that people do mortgages. The first is first-time buyers or somebody who's buying a house. You know, I'm going to even use an example of when, you know, we bought our house now 25 years ago, but I remember I was shocked when I went to a mortgage broker and and said, "Okay, well, you know, I'm starting to look at this house for this dollar amount." And they just said I could literally buy one like twice as much as what I was looking at. I was shocked because I saw how much that mortgage was going to be. Um, is this common? Is this happening even today? Yes. I mean, we we I always tell clients, and I know sometimes if realtors are listening, they won't like this, but we can usually qualify you for more than you want to buy. And so I'm never going to talk somebody out of buying a home, but I do let them know, hey, this is normal. So just because I pre, pre-approve you and your spouse up to 400000 doesn't mean you need to go out and buy a $400,000 home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I remember you even have said to people like, You've heard Dave Ramsey, who has great advice about money. Uh, what does Dave Ramsey say about buying a house? Dave uses a, his general rule of thumb is to keep your mortgage payment with taxes and insurance, everything all told, at right around twenty five percent of your take home pay, which is kind of low. I mean, I, I sometimes I'll do that calculation on the phone with somebody, and I'll be like, "Wow, that's all they can." I mean, that you know, that's all that rule says. Mm-hmm. So I don't want people to take from this conversation that I got to keep my mortgage payment at twenty five percent. But it's a nice starting point if you're kind of all over the place and you don't know what you want to buy. So uh, let's talk about an example of someone buying a house. You need to put some money down. What's what's the dollar amounts minimally we have to put down, and what is suggested? So ideally, our I'm forty six years old. So my folks always their generation was. Really, there was no loan out 
for a while that you could get into under 20%. So kind of the old school thought is put 20% down on your loan, which is great. I mean, I would never talk somebody out of that. But actually today we have as low down as 3% loans for conventional. A lot of real estate agents don't know that. But they you have to pay for fine. it. You have to pay for it in some way, right? Correct. So if you have less than 20% down on a loan, you have what's called PMI, which is private mortgage insurance, which is just the, the lender taking out an insurance policy because you're at a little higher risk on paper to not pay it back. Right. However, to add, a lot of private PMI rates have come way down. So what we'll do behind the scenes, Ed, for clients is we'll run, okay, if you're saving, you're going to pay PMI, but really, I'd rather see you keep that money in the bank, that extra four months reserves, than because the PMI rates are so cheap is what we've, we usually come to. This is one of the reasons why saving up, you know, if you're thinking about a house and you're not like, hey, I need to have it right now, you want to save up as much as you can for that down payment because then you put yourself in a way better spot. It just makes it less lower rate and your flexibility, lower payments. It's just good across the board. What's the kind of prep work somebody should do before they like really get going on wanting to buy a house? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say the number one thing you want to do is find a mortgage lender and have them run a pre-approval for you. And what that entails to me would be to run your credit. Credit's good for about four months. Now, depending on when you listen to this, things are so fluid right now with the COVID virus that a couple months ago, it was only good for 30 days. Now it's back to four months. So what I would say is definitely have a mortgage lender run a pre-approval, which entails giving them uh, income documents, let them run your credit, and where is your down payment coming from? So those are the three things that I like to talk to people about is credit, income, down payment on a purchase. Okay, so credit, income, down payment. Three good things to make sure we we know going in. Is there anything else when it comes to the players needed uh, besides you in, in a purchase of a home? I think it's it's imperative that you find a good real estate agent to work with. And, you know, look, it's 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 always great to find somebody off a of referral. A lot of our friends and family know somebody who's a real estate agent. But one thing to be careful of is that don't just work with somebody as an agent. Don't take that. It's, it's way definitely more of an important position than I think a lot of people give it credit for is working with a good agent. When, when let me, you say that for a reason, right? I mean, what have you, have you seen this like backfire because somebody just finds somebody who's yeah, Not I just I was just working with uh we just had a file about two months ago in the Chicago area where this this borrower of ours was working with a very good agent and she was giving him honest she was trying to sell his home and find him a new home and she was giving him honest advice saying, Hey, listen, your your home is overpriced. And so like what most of us do is say, Well, I want to find somebody else that'll listen to me because I want more money for my home. Well, this guy proceeded to fire this realtor who really was a good agent. And I'll explain in a minute why she was a good agent and found this guy that was his neighbor who just did it part-time, which again, there's nothing wrong with part-time agents. However, this guy didn't have the, he ended up selling the home for what the first lady told him she, this, the borrower would sell it for. And so that was number one. But the bigger issue was that this, this new agent introduced a, a real estate attorney who is really the second important piece is having a good real estate agent and a good attorney somebody that's knowledgeable, that does a lot of real estate. The problem is what happened was moving fast forward, our borrower got his, found a buyer for his house. It was under contract. I, we, I was working on a new purchase in a neighboring town for him. Well, he couldn't close on our new purchase 
until he sold his old home, which is what we call contingency. So we we got his loan clear to close, ready to go. His his attorney didn't stay on top of things, and his buyer fell through at the last minute. So now we are scrambling at the literally like 48 hours prior to closing mm. with how we're going to get this guy done. And I'll, you can tune into the next episode, and we'll tell you how that turned out. But what I'm getting at is that not all realtors or attorneys or mortgage lenders are created equal. Okay. Good. That's very good information. Have a good team. You That's know, right. All, all three people. All right. Great. Well, the last big piece is the one that a lot of us uh, are are doing as well right now, which is refinancing. I just refinanced with you. Everybody who's considering refinancing, there's a lot that goes into this. You know, when when does someone kind of consider to do this? I know rates being low, we should probably consider it. If if you if you got your mortgage, I don't know, at least a, one or two years ago or longer, then rates were significantly higher, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say this. If if your interest rate is over three and a half percent as of right now when you listen to this, now you could list somebody could listen to this a year from now and maybe laugh. But if your interest rate is over three and a half percent, it's a good time to take a look at this. Now, traditionally the old our parents' advice was don't refinance unless you're gonna save a point. That's not necessarily the case because what we like to do is if we're just looking to lower the rate and not consolidate any debt, what we like to do is a a mini cost analysis behind the scenes. What does it cost me to refinance divided by how much am I saving every month? That typically gives us a number of months it'll take to recoup our costs. So, I mean, if you have a $400,000 loan, a three-eighths of a point might make sense. You might recoup your cost Mm -hmm. within Mm -hmm. a reasonable timeline. Yeah. In fact, we just did this for my parents. Remember, I had you look at their their mm-hmm. mortgage, which was higher than the current rates. Mm-hmm. And I think we came up with about 21 months, you know, mm-hmm. little little under two years. And that's a pretty short period of time if you think you're going to be in the house at least uh, a while longer than that. That's right. Now, you said 3.5% right now, but is there kind of a, a difference between the interest rate and where rates are at? So like, let's say rates change. Somebody listens to this in a couple of months. Should we only consider it if it's at least over a half a percent better than what we're getting or three quarters or one, or does that not matter? I don't think it matters. I think, again, if, you ha- if you're working with a competent lender that's going to be transparent and, and have your best interest at heart, I think that person, he or she should just be willing to tell you, this are what the costs are to refinance, and this is what you're saving. And and, and obviously, we, you know, if somebody has a financial advisor, it's good to bring that person in to, to get the opinion. But I just think rates are so low right now that we don't know how much lower they're going to go. Everybody's trying to time the market. And I know a good financial advisor that always says, don't try to time the market. <laughs> so uh, the other thing is, let's talk about different types of mortgages. The most common is a 30-year mortgage that people will get, right? And then if they refinance, they can do that. But you can also get 15-year mortgages. Can you get anything besides 15 or 30-year? Yeah, the mortgage industry has now evolved from like three ice cream flavors to now over 31, meaning with loan terms. I mean, you can actually do a custom term today where if you walk into my office and say, I have 26 years left on my mortgage, I'd like to refinance at 26 years, we can do that. So you can, there's... Under the conventional, I should I should clarify. Under a conventional mortgage, you can basically customize your loan term. Okay, so the other thing to be aware of is that there's a recast option on these conventional loans, which a lot of people don't know of. And what that is is that I'll give you a quick story. We had a a client of uh, ours. She bought a home, a pretty nice home, up up in the Burbs, and was able to qualify to buy the new home without having to sell her other home. 
And the nice thing is, is that I walked, she was like, well, look, I don't have a ton of money right now to put down on this new home until I sell my old home. So we put, I think it was 10% down, knowing that when she sold her old home, we would take the net proceeds and we could actually apply it into her new mortgage. So what recast means is, just for a quick example, if you take out a loan for 300,000, the lender will calculate your payment at that. If you, and then if you decide to put another 100,000 in after you sell your old home, now your balance went from 300 to 200. Now they, a re, under the recast option, they'll recast your payment and it, they'll actually calculate your loan payment at the new balance. There's a, that's a big difference. Pay attention to that versus if you had a $300,000 loan and you just applied an extra 100,000 towards principal, your payment will stay the same unless you do the recast option. That's good. That's a good, good thing to know. So it's great that there's all this flexibility because I remember so many times people having a 30-year mortgage and then refinancing, they might have 25 years left and they really don't want to go out 30 more years because it feels like, oh my gosh, I don't want to go out 30 more years. So then they try to finagle it and then they pick a 15 and then it makes it a really much higher payment, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it could just put things in a in a bind. You know, if, if you're still raising kids or going to college, you know, it makes it more difficult. This way, if you can just... Keep it at the 25, 26, 27 years makes makes it a lot better. So so those are the main bullet points we wanted to talk about today. Is there anything cl in closing that you wanted to also share just about the mortgage industry or mortgages or refinancing that you thought would be helpful? Yeah, a couple things. Uh, with the interest rate environment so low and the mortgage business so busy, purchase loans are getting priority in the underwriting process, which just means the lenders are reviewing those files sooner than a refinance. Um, if a borrower is putting down at least 20% on, a, on their primary residence, a home they're going to live in, we're seeing them get the appraisal waiver about 55% of the time. What that means is that they're not having to pay for an appraisal. The system's accepting the value of the home, whether it be a purchase or a refinance. And that saves you not only $475 to $500 on an appraisal, but cuts off about seven to 10 days in the loan process. So that's kind of cool. Like yeah. that's kind of a new age thing that wasn't happening back in the in the late 90s, early 2000s. Some final thoughts here on self-employed borrowers for uh, during the COVID-19 crisis here that we're in. They, they have initially when COVID came out in, in March, the lenders didn't know what to do. So they really tightened up. They have since loosened up here in, in September, October. The main thing that's sticking is if you're self-employed, you do need to provide two months of business bank statements, which wasn't normally the case in the past. Really not nothing crazy on that. I mean, that's we, we prep our clients up front. And I'd say um, if you have a lot of debt, now is a good time to take a look at talking to your mortgage lender. to, to, to Maybe rolling it all up into the mortgage, right? If you have enough equity. Do I have time for a quick story? Yeah. Okay, so we took a client in the Chicago suburbs. He had about... $46,000 in debt. I think it was just under 9,000 of that 46 was uh, was an IRS tax lien. And he came to us and his guard was up. He's like, you know, I mean, you could tell he was getting punched in the gut everywhere he turned. And so we were able to save him, I wrote it down, about $973 a month and satisfy the IRS tax lien. Oh, wow. He, he was uh, happy afterwards. That's what makes it fun to come to work when you can help people like that out. Yeah, that's great. Well, we've learned a ton of things from you today, Brian. Uh, the most important thing I want to learn from you is food for thought. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing a little curveball here today. I'm not going to share a food for thought. I want to hear your food for thought. Brian and I go way back. We've loved a lot of food together. All the things I've shared with you so far, 
in the first six episodes, either recipes I've made or restaurants. I think you've uh, partaken in all those things, haven't you? I haven't. I have to be honest. I probably have. I haven't listened to every episode, so I, I owe you that. I will say this for the viewers at home. The, Chicken Marcella. The, the listeners at home. Ed is a phenomenal cook. I go on some vacations with Ed, and, and there's a restaurant in the area we go to, and they serve these omelets. And, and we're always like, these omelets are, are garbage compared to Ed's omelets. Ed <laughs> makes a great omelet. He also makes very good chicken marsala, but what Ed is known for is his legendary ice cream shakes. We'll That's be watching TV late at night. Ed will be sleeping on the chair, and all of a sudden he'll just jump up and say, it's time for a shake. So, lad, <laughs> I love your shakes. I can never beat that. But I did go dive into what my little treasure chest of uh, recipes. And what I found recently is a steak marinade sauce. And I got to come, I'm a transparent person, so I got to tell you everything. This is from All Recipes. I'm ashamed to tell you. But it had 30. Don't be ashamed. I have a lot of things from All Recipes. It had 3,100 reviews. And so it's a steak marinade that never disappoints. It's, we're going to post, I brought the, I brought the recipe with me. We're going to post it. Hopefully our team, In the show notes. Yep. our mm-hmm. professional staff will, will post it on the show notes. But it is phenomenal. I've had, I think I've made it at least six times in the last six months, and every time it's a home run. So enjoy. You said there were 3,100 reviews. You didn't say if they were positive or negative. That's true. But I can tell you, without reading every one of them, they, I bet you they're all positive. It's near five stars. It's it's a six star on a five. I'm gonna have star. to try it. One thing I wanted to mention just when you since you're talking about steaks, something that I learned literally over the last couple few years is the best way to cook a steak is to also make sure you let it set out at least an hour before you cook it. That's funny you say that, because part of the process is get it to room temperature. Yeah. Well now this this and again I won't go into the the recipe, but you do need to let this thing marinate for about up to eight hours in the fridge. So, so you almost want to do it, and like then early and then the you day. pull it out. It's phenomenal. If if you guys have a Facebook page, like this recipe on Facebook, please, and let us know some thoughts. Okay, <laughs> great. Well, just in closing, Brian, thank you so much, James and Francesca, for coordinating everything. Great to be here. I'm. Let me know when I can come back. You guys are great to work with. Thank you for all your help over the years. I have been slapped on my hand one too many times by my compliance attorney. This is to put me in good standing. This podcast represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time, should not be relied upon as investment advice, and is not intended to predict or depict performance of any investment. Any specific recommendations or comparisons that are made as to particular securities or strategies are for illustrative purposes only and are not meant as investment advice for any viewer.